Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. This is episode 379 of Jumble Think. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... Welcome to Jumble Think, where we interview dreamers, makers, innovators, and influencers all about their journey of turning dreams and ideas into reality. Along the way, we're going to share some tips on how you can turn your own dreams and ideas into reality, too. Our guest on today's show is Chris Hansen. More about Chris in a moment. Whether you're a new listener or a longtime fan, if you've never subscribed to Jumble Think, now's the time to do it. Head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts, search for JumbleThink, and click subscribe. To make it even easier, if you head on over to JumbleThink.com, you'll find links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and more. So, go like the show and never miss another conversation. Now, let's join today's conversation. Hey there, friends. Welcome to JumbleThink. My name is Michael Woodward. I am your host, We have a very special conversation about an important topic lined up for you today. I am a big fan of the question of journalism. I love the concept of journalism. I grew up watching Superman and loved the journalistic pursuit. But in the last several years, the question of authenticity, accuracy, integrity, and truth-telling in journalism has come to the forefront. We are honored to have Chris Hansen on the show. He is best known for To Catch a Predator, which debuted on Dateline NBC, but he's done a lot more outside of that. He has been a journalist for a long time. We're going to talk about that story and how he got into journalism. We're going to talk about his new podcast, Predators I've Caught with Chris Hansen. We're going to talk about some of his new Discovery Plus shows. We're going to talk about what it takes to do a good interview, what it takes to prep for conversations, what it takes to craft a good story. I'm excited about this conversation. I hope you are too. So let's go ahead and join our conversation with today's guest, Chris Hansen. Chris, thanks so much for taking time out and joining us here on JumbleThink. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You are, uh, we were talking beforehand, not only working on uh, the podcast that you have, not only on more Predator stuff, but also some Discovery Plus stuff. We're going to get into all of that and more. But before we dive into that, I want to get your spark moment and I've read about it. I've heard it for what triggered your, I want to be a journalist. I want to go explore what's going on in the world around me. Well, it's interesting because it started for me very early. I grew up about a mile and a half from where Jimmy Hoffa was kidnapped, where he was last seen at a restaurant called the Red Fox in Bloomfield Township, Michigan. And as you can imagine, being a, you know, 14, 15 year old in suburban Detroit and watching television news sort of for the, you know, really the first time on a regular basis. It was a huge story in Detroit. You had this massive personality, this teamster leader who was embroiled in all kinds of controversy, you know, criminally prosecuted, now out trying to get back into power. And he's gone. That yeah. it was the mystery of the decade, if not uh, the century in, in Detroit. So I used to ride my bicycle up there and there was the crime scene. The FBI agents, and the cops, and reporters from the local news and networks. And, you know, I kind of got bit by the bug right then. And so when I went off to Michigan State University, and I just walked over to the campus radio station on the first day, signed up, and 
suddenly I was a journalist at uh, 18 years old, (laughs) (laughs) you know, kind of learned on the job from there. So that's how it began. Yeah. And it's amazing to me, the Hoffa story is still an iconic moment in which there's no resolution. There is no answer. There is no uh, finality on what exactly happened. Well, there's no finality in that, you know, nobody's ever found his body, his remains, or has the ultimate, you know, confession of what happened. People have come forward. People have talked about a scenario where he was taken to a house in Detroit, shot. We've seen The Irishman, obviously, the the big Netflix movie that was so popular and, and well done, really. But I think the truth lies someplace in between on all these tales. I think he was kidnapped. And if you have access to some of the files I've seen over the years, he was taken pretty quickly to one of two locations in and around Detroit. And, you know, there is no evidence left. It was either a garbage disposal place or a chromium plating facility. And there's nothing left. There's no remains buried beneath, uh, you know, the metal ends or anything <laughs> like that. I think that gone. And as to who was responsible, obviously there was some interest in organized crime circles having him gone. And and, um, that's probably where it lies. But it's interesting because it continues to be, you know, a source of fascination up to and including uh, a point where a few years ago, probably about 10 years ago, um, at Dateline, we were working on a story on an unrelated murder case, but it happened to be that the producer was talking to an inmate in in Michigan, in uh, the state prison of Jackson. And he comes to me and he said, oh, by the way, I talked to so-and-so and he's got this other story about Hoffa. He says he knows what happened to Hoffa. I said, he and 6,000 other inmates in that <laughs> facility, you tell him to give you something that nobody else knows and we'll take it from there. Goes back, says, give me something. Hans wants something that nobody else knows. So he says, look, there's a body buried of a union official in Bay County near Saginaw, near Bay City, Michigan. And uh, this is the guy, he got whacked and he's buried on this property. We call the sheriff's department. They go out there, they set a team, they dig, and there's a body there. Wow. And it's the guy. So I'm thinking, we just have a a big story breaking out Hoffa. And the story was that in that same lot, that same property, that the kidnapped team buried a briefcase that had playing cards that the kidnappers used, which theoretically would have mitochondrial DNA and a syringe used to sedate Hoffa, which would have Hoffa's DNA, theoretically. And it's buried in the backyard. So I go to the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office. Now I grew up in Detroit, right? So the yeah. prosecutor at the time went to the same high school I went to. You know, everybody knows each other, you know? And I said, look, I'm just gonna lay this out in the interest of justice. And obviously I want a good scoop, but I'm gonna give you everything I got. And all I want is first shot at exclusivity. I know once the cat's out of the bag, everybody's going to be out there. My pager is going to be going off. My phone's going to be ringing. Every reporter friend from Detroit will be calling. But at least give me a start on. So we're all set to go. And they interview the guy in prison. And the prosecutor's detective says, he's either the best liar I've ever talked to, or he has something to do with the Hoffa disappearance. Good enough for me. Then they go back again. They put him on a polygraph. He fails miserably. Wow. So at this point, we're committed to go. So we go and we go up there and we've got crews and the, <clears throat> the lawyer for the people who currently own the property or who did at that time wanted to charge me $25,000 for going on their property. Me already knowing the likelihood of finding anything because of the polygraph is 
slim to none. Yeah. You know, when just left town. So I said, look, I'll give you $2,500 if we can use your refrigerator and your bathroom <laughs> for our subway sandwiches. But, you know, I know something you don't know, which is this is a goose chase. Yeah. No, no, you're missing it. This is great. So I, we couldn't come to a deal. And they're digging and the crew's doing the best they can. And I finally, I hire a uh, lift uh, truck for $500 to come out there and put the camera in and then put it right over the property and shot everything. And there were a couple close calls when they thought they found something, but it, it ended up being a wild goose chase. But yeah. that was as close as I got to some super duper heretofore unknown hobbit scoop. Long afternoon in Bay City, Michigan. <laughs> Now, you've worked on some big moments, the Columbine High School Massacre, the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, the Unabomber TWA Flight 800, and uh, you do these big stories. You cover these noteworthy moments, touch points in history. I remember being in high school when Columbine happened, and I remember what the emotions were in the high school. I remember how students were reacting. I remember what it meant for me. You have covered so many different things. What are the things that stand out to you from the standpoint of of moments where you say this story really impacted you personally, really changed your perspective on? They all they all have an impact. I think the ones that really impacted me, obviously nine eleven, uh, which became a way of life for still is. Yeah, yeah. But the first real moment where as an adult uh, with some maturity with a few years of a national perspective was uh, um, the Oklahoma City bombing. And I remember distinctly being in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania on an unrelated story, obviously. That's where I'm at, basically. Just, oh, is that uh, right? You're right uh, there? About 15 miles west of Harrisburg right now. So we, we were wrapping up a story or getting ready to shoot a story. And this is all over news radio, obviously April 19th, 1995. And I call in and I said, uh, what's going on out there? And they said, well, it might have been a gas explosion, something we're not sure. And so I start on my own making phone calls. And I get through to some federal law enforcement sources who say, this was a bomb. Wow. Oh, man. So I call back. And I said, look, I, I should get out there. Everybody should be out there. I said, yeah, agreed. So, you know, from Harrisburg to Oklahoma City that night was five different flights. And I finally get in and I meet up with my producer and they had already gotten in downtown Oklahoma City, a hardware store that they had figured out a way to rent and and because uh, the whole area is blocked off and they had a high low with a pallet on it and they lift us up to the rooftop and you could see it. I remember standing there and I thought, oh my God, the whole front of the building was off. Yeah. The casualty, uh, casualties had not even been tabulated, but we knew it was, you know, potentially in the hundreds, at least a hundred and ended up being 168 and, you know, pretty much stayed there for the rest of the spring and the summer on and off and on the trail of John Doe number two and, you know, the, the background on McVeigh and Nichols and ultimately interviewing Nichols brother in Michigan. And it was just a, 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 an unbelievable story as to how this became the, up until that point, the worst case of domestic terrorism in the history of our country. And, and it impacted me. And now so many years has gone by 26 years that my second son's a reporter for the Fox station in Oklahoma City. His apartment wow. looks down on the memorial. Wow. So it's almost like it's come full circle now, you know? Yeah. And um, so that, you know, I thought that's the worst thing I'd ever seen in my career. And then came 9-11. Yeah. And, you know, so many things, I've been so blessed to 
work with the people with whom I worked and have the opportunities I have had. And, and I tell both of my sons, one's behind the scenes in the business, and one's, as I said on air, I said, it's sort of like the reporter's prayer. God, let it not happen. But if it does, let me be the first guy there. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it's going to happen, let me be at the, you know, at the forefront of history. And, and I've been very fortunate and, and it's, um, you know, it's not over yet. There's so much more to do. And, and that's why, you know, I think that's what keeps me going at such a high level is that, you know, I'm just genuinely curious about all this stuff. And obviously there's a accent on crime and investigative and enterprise reporting, which is always what I've, I've tried to do. And um, it continues in all kinds of new uh, ways with new media and the challenges of the pandemic. And we just, it, it's amazing to me how everybody has adapted and we move on and we cover it. You know, wh- how, who would have known that there'd be something called YouTube in which I could sit where I'm sitting now or at, at the house in Michigan and interview husband and wife emergency room doctors from Brooklyn and Manhattan connect them with their grandchildren, with their children who are staying with grandma and grandpa in Staten Island, talk to a restaurant owner, and then a nurse from the University of Michigan Medical Center all in one show, and then do a cooking segment at the end. I mean, you, you, it's amazing what you can do with the, the equipment that I'm looking at right now. Yeah. But you're yeah. You. And that's what we did during the pandemic, during the peak of it. With so much of how COVID's redefined our approach, Oh, yeah. On connectivity, on communication, on telling stories. It'd be interesting how this medium, not only podcasting and vlogging, but also how uh, traditional outlets like NBC or uh, cable news networks shift their approach for future journalism. Well, you know, you talk about the two series I have out now on Discovery Plus. Yeah. Um, one of them, the Unseemly series, the Peter Nygaard investigation with Fashion Mobile. Is accused of you know sexual assault, grooming, predatory behavior going back forty some years. We had been interviewing victims in the Bahamas, where he has a massive estate, something out of Jurassic Park. Really. <laughs> and we literally got back from that trip. We had added on a few days and turned it into a little bit of a vacation. Got back on March fifth of last year. And we're connecting through Miami and I could, it was eerie. It was like they were just about to shut it down. So we had that very important, very compelling material in the can before the shutdown. Yeah. But as time went on, we literally did a lot of these interviews remotely. And we had a fly pen that had, you know, a, a kit of iPads and things that could be set up and, and with lighting. And we could do these things remotely. Ultimately, we would get crews into the towns and, we often do and do it remotely that way. And we did, you know, towards last summer, open things up and we had some studios in Brooklyn that we could use, but it was just bizarre. I mean, sound people I've worked with for, you know, 25 years with rubber gloves on and a mask and a shield just to put a microphone down my shirt. Yeah. And um, it, it's really quite something to see and live through. It's, it's uh, certainly something I hope we don't have to deal with again. Yeah. For you, uh, your career has been defined in a lot of ways by to catch a predator. That sure. is what you are known for. That has an interesting story on how it started. That was your idea. There are a lot of jobs that like I'm sure Dateline or other large productions for news where uh, there are editors and other 
players, producers who are sitting there tossing ideas around. How did you approach pitching that to the team? And what was their reception to, I have this new concept? It was concept. very simple. I had, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a reporter in Detroit, the fellow who took my job when I left uh, the Detroit NBC station to come to New York. And he said, have you heard of this uh, online watchdog group called Perverted Justice? I said, I said, no, what do they do? And he explained it. I reached out to him and uh, I thought, well, if we could combine their ability to be decoys online with our ability to wire a house with people, cameras and microphones, you know, this could be pretty compelling. And, and obviously there were anecdotal stories around that time. This is 2004 that was starting to surface about kids who were being preyed upon online or a girl who met somebody and ended up dead or sexually assaulted, horrible things, but nobody had actually infiltrated the crime, you know, and so I pitched it and, and a lot of smart people at NBC weighed in and, and we um, set up a sting operation in Bethpage, Long Island in February of 2004. I can't believe 17 years ago now. Yeah. And um, we did it. And I was literally driving in a car going over the Throgs Neck Bridge, heading over there and I got stuck in traffic and I started to daydream and wonder what if nobody shows up? What if... Yeah. You know, I've just wasted tens of thousands of dollars of the network's money and, and nothing happens. And with that, my producer, Lynn Keller, calls and says, you know, we've got two guys scheduled to show up in 45 minutes. Where the hell are you? Yeah. And it was nonstop. And by the end of two and a half days, 17 guys had come to that house to meet and have sex with a um, 12, 13 or 14 year old child. Yeah. And we started to put it together and we're trying to figure out how does this go and what do we do? And we knew it was very compelling and it kind of sat on the shelf, not for any particular reason, except they wanted to promote it and do the right thing with it. And finally, in the fall of, uh, of uh, that year, the first one aired and predictably it got a lot of attention and we did the next one. And on the third one, finally, we had the opportunity to work with law enforcement, which, yeah, you know, became the socially responsible thing to do. We faced criticism in different journalist circles, uh, mostly from the old guard, saying that we were working too closely with police. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was the socially responsible thing to do, I think. And, you know, from a pure television production standpoint, it was unfulfilling to the viewer to have these guys walk out of the house whistling Dixie. Now, the, the police made some prosecution. Yeah, yeah. On the first two investigations based upon what they saw, what they did in their independent investigation. But it wasn't, it just wasn't right. Didn't have the closure. It didn't have that emotional, there's finality to it. It didn't have, yeah, it didn't have closure, you know, and it didn't have justice, uh, ultimate justice, the way, you know, we could do it if we changed uh, the way we operated. So we did. And, you know, now all these years later, we did another one, a sting operation in, uh, Michigan, near Flint in Genesee County, just uh, a month and a half ago. And once again, we had a Michigan State prison guard. We had a fellow who worked in the auto industry. We had a former police officer from Lebanon. We had wow. uh, guys from all walks of life. A babysitter showed up all to, to meet a minor for sex. And it, it hasn't gone away. The technology has changed. And imagine one of the reasons why we started to do the podcast, Predators I've Caught, which looks back at some of the uh, historic cases is because during this pandemic, more kids have been online more than ever before in the history of this world. Yeah. And more predators know that. Yeah. And parents are more preoccupied. And, and think about this. When we first did 
the original predator investigations. We merely had the decoys in chat rooms at AOL and Yahoo. Well, today, the number of social media platforms available for kids to use, for predators to abuse, has exploded. I mean, every day I hear of another one and another way to do this. We literally had to shut down an investigation because of a fire on the West Coast that took down Yahoo's servers. Yeah, yeah. That's when we started this. Now, today, you wouldn't miss a beat. No. Just go to the next platform. We're going to take a break right here, but when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Chris Hansen. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. And if you are, could you help support the JumbleThink podcast? Not by giving a donation or sending us your hard-earned money, but by simply sharing this conversation with somebody you know. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a colleague. Maybe it's a friend. Most likely, it's somebody who likes a good story and a good conversation. Somebody like you. By sharing today's conversation, you help us get the word out about JumbleThink, help us grow this community, and help us share important stories with the world. Can I ask you for one other favor? If you want to go a step further, would you share today's conversation on your favorite social media outlet? Whether it's Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter, just post a little post about what today's conversation has done for you. Thanks so much for helping us out. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Now let's jump back into today's conversation. There is this question of balancing journalism and entertainment, journalism and justice. How did you, you're going into this. Nothing had been done quite like this before. And you have to reconcile those type of things. Uh, What is the right end point for this predator? What is the right balance with entertainment, with journalism? How did you reconcile those things? How did you morph as you went along to to really combat 
partially the criticism, but also the internal, I'm sure, dilemma that you were facing? Well, I think all of us involved knew what compelling television was. Yeah. So there's an internal sense of what was going to be fascinating or compelling to people. So that's the easy part. You know, if you spend enough time in this business, you know when you see it, you know when you hear it that this is something that people are going to want to see and, and you know, as it turns out, be obsessed with. But the other side of it is, you know, how much is too much? And I remember in the beginning, we would, you know, always have an expert. We'd set up the problem. We'd justify doing this thing because, you know, X number of kids were abused online potentially and this is the former FBI agent who works in that field. And, and that was fine, but it was almost like we were going through this exercise to satisfy, you know, somebody from the Houston Chronicle who may be at a journalism conference, you know, yeah. his glasses down to here, you know, and, and ultimately what people wanted was to see the confrontations. Now you balance that you need context. I think what you really need to see. And I think one of the most important parts of what we do is to show the grooming process. Yeah, yeah. Online, and when he shows up, <clears throat> the predator shows up at the home and has, you know, discourse with the uh, on-site decoy. And I think that's very telling, too. And we were able to develop a way to do that. And, and uh, you, you see this play out, and it's really, really compelling. You know, we used to say, you know, when I was a kid, don't talk to strangers. Good, yeah. uh, good advice in, you know, yeah. 1960s and, and still good advice today. The problem is for parents is that the person who may be a stranger on Tuesday is no longer a stranger by Saturday. Yeah. Because they're yeah. so adept at grooming. You look back through the 40s, 50s, and 60s, stuff like this was going on, but it was always the person that was known, the person that was in, right. in the community. And technology has really changed how uh, these predators prey on uh, potential victims. And... We look at Me Too and, 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 you know, I remember watching to catch a predator in the early 2000s. And I remember seeing it and being, finding it fascinating, just the shift that was going on. I, I've worked in tech for uh, several years now, own a, an agency that's built for large corporations, web technologies. And, and it amazes me how quickly technology evolves. But it also creates these problems that were unexpected or unforeseen, un, un, um, uh, prepared for because we couldn't. So to catch a predator, you, you're driving to Long Island and you're thinking, what if no one shows up and people show up, obviously. Did you know beforehand that this could have potential uh, ratings hit, but also cultural impact on, on conversations that need to be had? No, I, I mean... I knew it was important, but I mean, honestly, I thought it would be another segment on Dateline. I yeah. thought even after the success of the first episode, the first uh, investigation, I thought, well, we'll do this two or three more times. And obviously nobody's going to show up. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's going to be, and it'll be a success if nobody shows up because we'll have, you know, created awareness and a dialogue that didn't exist before. And, and the episode where I'm taking a nap on the, on the kitchen counter, like the Maytag repairman with nothing to do, that will be success. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, after Riverside, where we did, you know, do a parallel investigation with law enforcement and 51 guys showed up and guys started to talk about how they had seen the show or suspected it could have been me. Uh, I thought, well, this is, you know, this is the beginning of the end and that's fine. 
There are yeah. plenty of other stories. You know, the Predator franchise is still, what, 5% of my portfolio? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's what people know. It became iconic. I knew, you know, my kids grew up in a high school where being having a dad on television was no big deal. Dads yeah. ran uh, huge financial firms, captains of industry, sporting uh, world. And But when South Park did a to catch our predator Chris Hansen episode, I was the coolest dad of all. And that's when, you know, I realized, you know, holy cow, this is, uh, this has become a part of pop culture in a way that nothing else I will ever do. And I have this discussion with, with my son, who's a reporter. And, and I said, you know, there came a time when you either embrace it for all the good that it does and the importance that it is, but you take a different path mm-hmm. in journalism and television. And you can spend your life saying, okay, I did that and I'm going to run away for, from it. Or you can embrace it for all the good that it brings. And it brings a lot of good, yeah. both in terms of access when doing other stories, especially that involve law enforcement, because obviously there's a sense of trust there because I've been doing this so long and I've never burned a source. So people are more likely to trust me with information on both sides. I and mean, that yeah. goes with defense attorneys, just as it goes with the prosecutors and law enforcement. So you embrace it. You know, will I end up covering the White House, you know, before I retire? No, probably not. But it has been suggested and I have editorial cartoons on my wall here in New York City that I should cover the White House more, depending on who's the, who the occupant is at that particular time. Yeah. <laughs> Congress, too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. One of the questions that you ask in your podcast that I really found fascinating, I, I don't remember if it was the dark... Um, Dark Hero, Matt Dooley uh, conversation, or if it was one of the other ones. But you talk about understanding this predator's story about how he was raised and how he had experienced all this trauma. It it is really easy to make somebody a victim, uh, and there should be justice in there. But uh, in this cancel culture where somebody makes a small mistake, says something 30 years ago, and now it's coming back out. Where do we balance the line of justice versus mercy? How do we reconcile that a person is a culmination of things that have happened to them and that they've done? And how do we reconcile that? How have you reconciled that with the show? Well, you know, it raises a very good question. And, and, you know, one of the reasons why I think the whole thing has worked is because I don't go out and, you know, immediately start yelling at the guy and, and slitting his throat. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's my job to get inside these guys' heads, whether it's a predator investigation or any other interview. Anybody can jump out of the back room or from behind the bushes and create 10 seconds of, you know, traumatic video. My job is to engage this person, have a conversation, get as much information as I can, get in their heads, discover what brought them to this situation, as unpleasant as it is, and learn something about that experience. And and some people are just stone cold predators. They're bad human beings that need to be locked up forever. And I've seen those guys. Some guys are young and they're uh, socially awkward and they figure, well, if I can make time with a 14-year-old girl in a couple of years, it works out, she's going to be old enough and I'm not that much older and, you know, Everything will be okay. And those guys can have probation and they can have a plea agreement and treatment and understand that it's wrong and not do it again. And then there's this really interesting category in the middle where guys wouldn't be doing this if it hadn't been for the internet, the addictive nature, the access, the 
anonymity of it. And, and these guys could go either way. And that's the murky area here that uh, I don't think anybody knows for sure who's going to reoffend and who's not. But I think treatment and punishment is a combination that works for a lot of these guys. But the heavy hitters, you got to lock them up. And so in the course of doing this, you know, I try to get as much information as I can. Obviously, I'm going to be you know, hard on these guys. But if I can get inside their minds and understand a little bit about how that mind works and then hear the voice of the victim and understand the impact that that person could have on an innocent 12, 13, 14 year old, then I think we can better prepare a lot of other people in terms of preventing them from becoming victims. And that's kind of the mantra here. In all these stories, whether it's a murder story or a financial crime investigation or the predator, traditional predator stories, that, that's the goal here. I mean, it's, it's creating awareness and a dialogue that didn't exist before. And the best way to do it is to actually get inside the crime, to infiltrate it as we have. And it's clearly compelling. Again, you know, if you had asked me 17 years ago, would some of these characters I've caught become iconic in their own right? Yeah. Would there be online groups focused on just one guy who I caught in a, in a living room in Kentucky no, I would never have believed that. There are people who have dinner parties with menu items named after the predators. Wow. I mean, it's, 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 the following is, is intense, and I respect that. And uh, one of the reasons to do the podcast, besides the where, awareness and the, the you know, soul searching that it, it has me do, which I think is very healthy and very interesting to, to relive some of this stuff and go back over it with perspective, but it, it's, it's, it's to, you know, sort of pay homage to the people who've been so loyal and who have followed this in a way that I've never, never seen before on any, any story. It, it is a loyal, dedicated group, and, and not just a small group, a, a huge group around the world. And we have people in Europe, in the Middle East, uh, Africa, who religiously listen to this podcast. Yeah. And, you know, every week there's a, there's a jump in the number and, and people care about it. And so yeah. I need to serve that community and try to educate people to keep their kids safe. Yeah. You know, we have heard over the last several years, whether it's Weinstein or uh, Matt Lauer or uh, Richard Ailes, or at a small level, we hear it in our own communities. It's somebody's uncle. I, I went to uh, school to study to be a pastor. I pastored in California for years. My roommate at the college I went to uh, just got busted for abusing youth in his youth group, and and that breaks my heart. And sure. and and so we hear about all of these in different spaces. I have two young daughters. I have a seven year old and a four year old. How do we effectively prevent or build systems that are healthy to? guard our children. I know you're a father too. You've had to probably think about these things too. How do we do that as a parent to protect our children? I think it's all about communicating with the children. I think that you need to start early with an age-appropriate discussion. And I think it starts with, there are people on the internet, adults, who like to trick kids and kids don't like to be tricked. And so if you start there and as you know, your child gets older, you continually to continue to adjust that conversation at an age appropriate level, um, you can better protect your children. And at the end of the day, you know, you want to treat 
this like the drug problem. Okay. Demand yeah. reduction. Yeah. For for years we tried draconian sentencing uh, measures that didn't work. You need to reduce the demand. But there are some people for whom the demand can't be reduced. It's yeah. uncontrollable. Yeah. The access is there. Uh, the anonymity, as I said, and, and the addictive nature of it is going to dictate that this problem will never go away. The internet's not going away. Right. It's going to get more prolific. More yeah, that's for sure. So you need to teach the kids that people are out there who do this. It's unhealthy. It's inappropriate. It's trickery. And, and you don't want to be a victim. So here's how you prevent from doing that. You don't talk to people you don't know. You don't go meet somebody in person who you don't know in real life. And just because somebody says they're a 14-year-old kid from you know, Manhattan Beach, California, doesn't mean that's who they are. They could be some fat guy in his boxer shorts in a yep. basement surrounded by pizza boxes. Yep. And that's reality. But yeah. that image will stick in a child's mind, I think. And again, you know, I, I know child therapists and psychologists who are way smarter at this than I am, but that's my takeaway on it because I've looked these guys, almost 400 of them, face to face. And that's my takeaway, you know, as a journalist and as a parent. As a journalist, I, I want to pivot this uh, conversation a little bit and ask about your, your perspective on something that's going on. Uh, we have a president, Trump, who loved him or loathed him, has been banned from social media. We've had other people who are um, on all facets. It's it's happening on conservatives and liberals. It's happening everywhere where their voices are being censored. You've even faced this a little bit with YouTube and some of your videos mm-hmm. where if you tag them a specific way or ser- say certain things, uh, you get taken down as whatever specific thing they want to attack. How do we navigate this? How are you facing this as a journalist and saying, you know, there are important stories that need to be told that are controversial, that are not that are sensitive of nature, but need to be shared. Well, I, I think it's, I, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it comes back to common sense and YouTube has a distinct lack of it. Um, and and uh, I'll share with you that experience. I mean, I, I, I do some of the predator investigations uh, on YouTube kind yeah. of as a ramp up to the next television series, which will be out before too long. So, Anything I do that's a predator investigation on YouTube has limited monetization, which yeah. is fine. I, YouTube is not how I make a living, right? No. So, you know, it, I, I really don't care. But if I do, if another creator does something absolutely stupid and drops his pants, that's monetized, you know? And, and YouTube has become so powerful, so prolific, and so profitable that it's ahead of itself. It took our investigation into Onision, Gregory James Jackson, a prolific serial abuser, allegations of sexual impropriety, grooming, absolute abuse. It took our investigation, we've got a fourth episode coming next month on Discovery Plus, for YouTube to even demonetize him. This guy is facing criminal investigation. He... Uh, his victims spoken on, credible victims. And he's just a menace to online society in every single way. And yet, because he was an early content creator, he was afforded Google tools uh, and things to exploit the system to make a bunch of money. And he made YouTube a bunch of money. Yeah. 
Yeah. But yeah. it was really, you had to wrestle these people around. Nobody from YouTube would even come on the show to talk about this specific case or about policy in general. Imagine that. No Wouldn't accountability. Come on the show for an interview. I've been dogging Susan Wojcicki and her uh, press staff for a year now. Just have the conversation. Let's do something, you know, big and thoughtful. Not even considered. They don't want to go there. And, and <clears throat> there's going to be a reckoning. So when you take that from YouTube to Twitter, which has become the central repository for mental masturbation for the world, from the White House to the lowest level troll, uh, and I'm, I guess I'm begging for a ban by saying that, but, you know, I, I'm in communication with Dorsey and Borman and those guys. I, I mean, I file my feelings and complaints. They know who I am. But, it, you know, what do you do? They're in, a, they're in a very difficult situation. Yeah. So you've got somebody who promoted an attack, an insurgency on the White House on January 6th, clearly incited. And do you not do anything just because he's the president of the United States? they were in a very difficult situation. And I think at least initially, and I'll take heat for this, uh, made the right call. I mean, they had, what do you, you had to do something. I mean, they were damned if they do, damned if they don't. Right, right. Now there are weightier intellectual discussions to have about, okay, the cat's out of the bag. It's virtually unregulated. What do we do? There's, you know, government regulation, there's this, there's that. I, you know, I've risked my life for the First Amendment. I get it. I yeah. get it more than most human beings. But this hate speech and these misinformation campaigns, the same techniques used by the Russians to infiltrate our in election process in 2016 and 2020 are used daily by goon squads on the internet who want to attack anybody, you or me, to create drama, clicks, clout, and cash. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. And it's virtually unregulated. Now, you can Twitter will respond. I've had yeah. people say outrageous things about me on Twitter that were just patently false, and they've taken them down. They have, to their credit. Yeah. I've had people impersonate me to do embarrassing things. You, know, you go after somebody, you go after somebody like Onision. Mm -hmm. That person is skilled enough to create a misinformation campaign and fight back. And that that's what he does. And then he'll enlist goons who see an opportunity to create a drama channel or a discussion. And by the time it spins around and comes 360, people don't know what the truth is, yeah. what their motivation is. All they know is they're getting a check from Google AdSense every month, or they're getting added viewers, or they're taking on somebody who's, who's kind of, and what it comes down to, and Thomas Friedman of the New York Times wrote about this eloquently several months ago, is that we need to provide some sort of a civics class or lesson to people yeah. who get their information from the internet. Because, and I've done interviews with people and I can tell where they're going with it because they're following what was on Wikipedia and was they got my birthday wrong, they got the number of Emmys wrong. They're just the stupid little stuff that should be easy to do. And the reason they do it is because all the research is on the internet. They don't pick up the phone and call somebody. When I say that so-and-so and so-and-so -so -and -so is under federal investigation, it's because I've talked to somebody in the loop. Yeah. Somebody who's seen a document, somebody who's conducting the investigation, somebody who knows somebody who knows a human being, not just computer aided reporting. Yeah. Or found an article in some publication from 10 years ago that was wrong then and even more wrong now. And that's the problem. Young people, some young people today think that it's research to go 
and find something that's already been done with absolutely no independent verification. And the rest of it's, you know, honking, basically. So in, in those cases, as, as a podcaster who is trying to create good content, have informed conversations, who wants to do a really good job at what I'm doing, what are some things that I can take away or learn from uh, a journalist like you to apply to my approach on how I approach podcasting to actually hone that better? Talk to human beings. Don't just rely on what's on the internet, what's on Wikipedia. What's, I can't even access my own Wikipedia page. It's so obnoxious. It's got the worst pictures. Ever. I, it's my, it's about me. Yeah. And I'm locked out of it Yeah, because I'm a celebrity. So yeah. the celebrity can't even get to his own Wikipedia. I, and I've had conversations with people over there. I said, can't you do something about this? They take the absolute worst screen grab from a YouTube show before I even figured out what YouTube was. We just got it to have a, you know, a piece of real estate there. And, and this is the picture. Out of all the pictures of Chris Hansen, that's the picture that's on Wikipedia. I mean, go figure. And I can't, I can't fix it. So that says something about it. So you need to talk to people. Yeah. You need to have human interaction. And yes, there are amazing things that can be learned through computer-aided research and reporting. I do it all the time. I have people on my team who do it all the time who are more adept at it than I am. But yeah, it's important. And the public record is something that is accessible. Criminal records are accessible online. And, and it, it's, it's, we use it all the time. But just because it's there doesn't mean it's absolutely true. Yeah. I see it all the time with interviewers. Okay, I know where I got that. I know where I got that. Do I correct him now? Do I correct him later? You know, it's, it's you know, I, I still have boxes of, you know, reporter notepads from 1981. You know, I, I, you know, I'm old school. I get it. And that's not how it works anymore. And I've adapted as well. But it does come down to needing to talk to human beings if you're going to separate yourself from the rest of the millions and millions of people doing a podcast or claiming to be reporters or having the tea on something. You, know. you mentioned Discovery Plus. Uh, you have two projects on there right now. Talk to us about those projects and what people should expect from them. I think when it comes to the Onision in real life series, and again, the three episodes are out now and the fourth is on its way next month, you will see something you won't see anywhere else. It is a, a look inside a digital predator predator who's been able to exploit more things than most predators have been able to exploit and get away with it. Yeah. And it wasn't until we actually took, and this is kudos to the editor who put this together. We took the terms of service video from YouTube, which is like good touching, bad touching. Yeah. And we intercut it with what this guy, Onision, Gregory James Jackson had been doing. And it's in so, so in violation. Wow. Of the terms of service. And it wasn't until we did that and that particular episode aired that they, they demonetized it. But it takes you into a world that you wouldn't normally see. Most people think that these you know, YouTube videos are pretty harmless. And, you know, what damaging effect could they possibly have? And by the way, you don't have to watch them. Well, this explains why. Yeah. Unseemly, the Peter Nygaard investigation, which I spent two years on, um, one of the executive producers, along with Blackfin. Um, production, Blackfin TV, a marvelous partner, um, put together this series on, you know, people talk about Epstein or Weinstein. We're talking about a guy in Peter Nygaard who, according to investigators, aside from all the predatory behavior, but one of the allegations is that he would actually impregnate teen girls in the Bahamas where he had, as I mentioned, this massive compound 
coerce them into having abortions and having the stem cells harvested from the fetuses to inject in himself in this sort of fountain of youth stem cell um, procedure. Wow. And we obtained hundreds of hours of videotapes from his videographer who bravely came forward and, and took part in the investigation. We have compelling interviews with victims, with uh, people involved in the investigation. And it all really started amazingly as a beachfront battle in the Bahamas between billionaires. Louis Bacon was a, a big hedge fund guy here in New York. Um, got involved in a, in a property dispute. He's the neighbor in the Bahamas. And it grew and grew and grew. And in the course of discovery in that matter, his investigators came across all this criminals and were duty bound and ethically bound to turn this over to authorities who ultimately last December indicted NIDAR. He is now in jail in Winnipeg, he's a Canadian citizen, and being held pending extradition. And he was wow. trying to get bond. I'm, I'm shocked, honestly shocked, that he didn't try to escape. He's got a private jet. He's got hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, close to a billion. This guy's company made every pair of jeans virtually that were sold by uh, dealers to other department stores. His, his New York headquarters was right down the street. I mean, when they raided it, you know, a year ago, I, it took us a while to get a crew there. I actually ran down from our apartment with a cell phone camera to get video. Wow. wow. So, and it was, it was a long haul to put that together. I mean, again, literally two years, but Discovery Plus uh, was a great place for it to go. Very supportive, as I said, Black Fan Productions and, and a lot of brave people, survivors came forward to help us tell the story. And these are not easy stories to tell. I mean, no. there were times during this when, you know, I, I, I say to people, I feel like I'm playing a 3D game of chess and I'm not sure where I'm at right now. So <laughs> many different personalities, so much drama involved in just to get the, get the story into production. But it, yeah. it was worth it and it, it's compelling. And again, the lesson is, you know, compelling stories using enterprising techniques. And, yeah. And cutting it out, you know, win the day, and you got to stick with it. I, I go back to the, the the lesson I learned on the um, uh, Epstein case. Uh, I worked on that three or four years ago and tried to fashion some sort of a sting, and it got complicated, and it got busy with other stuff. And, and it was the Miami Herald that kept chipping away, chipping away, and chipping away that yeah. finally brought it to the forefront with the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office here in New York. It resulted yeah. in an indictment because of that reporting, so in some ways. You mentioned there about the long haul and about putting the due diligence in about the being committed to a story and our society doesn't like that right now. They want the quick mm -hmm. result, the quick story, the quick outcome. How do we shift that? How do we take and really bring back holistic journalism like you approach it where you do the work, you do the time, you're committed to the story. We're not looking for the clickbait. We're not looking for the quick, easy story, but how do we get back to a place where we value that as a society? Well, I think you, you, you create the product and if you create the product, people will come and people will understand that this is not something you will get anywhere else. I, I think you have to balance it. I think we have the ability to turn things around quickly to respond to pandemic stories and COVID-19 stories, to respond to breaking news, to respond to the George Floyd story and to do it quickly. And those are important things. And network journalists and you know enterprising journalists like myself have to make those decisions every day. What is this worth 
you know, stopping the president. Yeah. In my old school parlance. Um, but it, it's, it's, you, you, you need to feed the bulldog every day. You know, there's something going on that you need to respond to. And, and that's important. But you also have to take the long view on certain things. And, yeah. and I, you know, even when I was in local news a million years ago, I would do stories day to day. They tended to be crime or breaking, occasionally a feature. And um, we would work and work and work and put the acorns away in the corner until you, you had enough to, to create a, a story out of it. How can people find these projects, the podcast, the YouTube series, also the Discovery Plus stuff? The, the podcast, the podcast, Predators I've Caught, is available on Apple, Spotify, um, iHeart, anywhere you get your podcasts. And I think we're up to episode 14 rolled out today. It's, it's a good one. So check that out. Uh, the YouTube channel is Have a Seat with Chris Hansen. Twitter is at Chris Hansen. Um, Instagram is official Chris Hansen. Um, the series, the television series are out right now on Discovery Plus, which is a Discovery streaming service, which is doing extremely well. So I, I urge you to uh, subscribe and check out those series there. And coming soon, the new Predator Investigations on television. We have a, a couple of, uh, of them on the YouTube channel right now. And um, yeah, we're rocking and rolling. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, it's rapid fire questions. All right. Next week on Jumble Think, we sit down with Bill Cartwright, a legendary NBA player and former center for the Chicago Bulls. We talk about his career, the difference between playing and coaching, and also what it was really like to play with Michael Jordan. Make sure to check out next week's episode of Jumble Think. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now let's jump into rapid fire questions with Chris Hansen. We are back with Chris to do rapid fire questions. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? I'm ready. All right. I'm going to throw in a wild, wild card question here. 
What is the one story you want to cover that you haven't yet? Hmm. There's so many. I guess I would like to do something on the sporting side of things. Okay. I'd love to cover as a, I'm a bit of a tennis buff and I, I like to play tennis. I'd love to cover the U.S. Open as an announcer. I That's doubt cool. that will ever happen, but I'd love to do it sometime. Well, you have the voice for it. They should do oh. it. It's a lot of good people already doing it, but I, I, that's what I'd like to do. <laughs> you just have to be there when somebody gets sick and they're like, can right. you sit in? <laughs> right. But they asked me to be here. Yeah. Yeah. As a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be what I am, believe it or not. I um, was one of those weird kids who, as I mentioned earlier, at 14, 15 years old, decided I wanted to be a reporter and was too stupid to realize there was anything I couldn't do. So I, it all worked out. If somebody has a big idea and dream and they don't know where to start, where would you tell them to start? At the beginning, you have to make your own breaks and you have to be just indefatigable about pushing this idea, whether you're on Shark Tank or whether you're creating a website or creating awareness, you just have to be creative and dedicated. And there are some really great stories out there, not just on Shark Tank, but other places where people have an idea and a dream. And you need to find sometimes the right partner to help you get there. Yeah. And that's the challenge to it. Yeah. And it's not easy. I don't pretend that it is. But, you know, for every, you know, thousand guys in my business who are every bit as talented as I am, they don't you know, get to the next level for many times, nothing that they did wrong. Yeah. So you do need to have a little bit of luck. Yeah. You know, I tell my son, I said, you're, you're, you're ahead of where I was at your age in terms of being a reporter. Now we just got to see how lucky we get. Yeah. Yeah. What do you wish you would have known when you first started out? So many things. And I was blessed to, you know, have a couple of good, you know, godfathers in this business who took a liking to me and, and, uh, taught me well from a practical standpoint who, you know, stayed on top of me to, to stay focused and, and gave great advice over the years. Um, so I'm blessed there, but I, I think I just would have liked to have seen a little better, the big picture of where things are going. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I don't, I don't have any regrets. Um, and I think everything turned out just the way it was supposed to turn out, but, but, you know, just, just to see the big picture a little bit beyond, Detroit. But having said that, I also think that immersing yourself in what you're doing at the moment is a key to success. Yeah. And so I don't know that I, I don't know that I changed that much. Quite honestly. A couple things here or there that I think I could have avoided by just seeing the long view, but, you know, taking a break now and again and just say, okay, what are we doing here and where does this lead me and how could I do it better? If you wouldn't have ended up being a journalist, what do you think you would have done? I think probably a lawyer um, of some sort, maybe law enforcement. People ask me all the time, you know, were you ever a cop or an FBI agent or something? And, and, and no, and I never really, you know, pursued it. I obviously became close with many and am close with many over the years because of the kind of work I do. But um, I, I imagine probably I would have ended up in law school if this hadn't worked out. What is one book you think every dreamer should read? That is an excellent question. I think there are two. 
And I think one is anything written by Hemingway. Okay. And the other, I'm trying to narrow this down. <laughs> For me, you know what I really, I really got a lot out of was, was Cronkite's biography, autobiography. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's inspirational in so many different ways, but it leads you through a life that was gifted in some ways that was meant to be, he was a man of his times and just an absolutely splendid guy to be around. And, and for me, those two books, like I said, anything from Hemingway, because it teaches you how to write cleanly and, and um, you know, the gifted life that, that Cronkite had. And it was hard work too. And yeah. I mean, yeah. he really, he was a gentleman. He was a hardworking guy. He could be a rascal. You know, Tom Brokaw once said that, uh, you know, you show me a reporter who's uh, not at least uh, 25% a con man, and then you show me a guy who can't get a job. Yeah. It's about access and not only, <laughs> and it's <laughs> you know, not the back door. I tell the kids all the time, a gentleman tips well and knows where the back door is. So yeah. you, know, you need to, you need to use everything at your disposal to get good at what you need. As we wrap up, our final rapid fire question is what is one dream you're still going to fulfill in your own life? You know, this is going to sound really weird and weirder to the people who know me best when they hear it, but uh, I would like to be able to paint a picture. Okay. And I have, uh, my mother was extremely talented as an artist. My sister, my youngest sister is extremely talented as an artist and graphic designer. And the ability skipped me along the way. I have another sister who's a, played the viola. Lovely, talented. I can't do anything. My dad used to tell people about his three kids. He said, I've got three artists. And they said, what kind of artist? Well, one's a musical artist, one's an art artist. And what about the third one? Your son, he's, he's a bullshit artist. <laughs> I love that. That's fun. As we wrap up, I always like to leave the guests to have a final thought. For all of us listening today, what do you want to leave us with? Well, I think for people who watch this show particularly, I think that you should never put limits on yourself. Mm. You should, you know, dream big, but execute uh, realistically, set your goals high, be willing to get 75%, but never, ever give up if you think you're right. Never give up. And don't don't back down, as Tom Brady said. Thank you so much for taking time out. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was lovely. Once again, I want to thank Chris Hansen for joining us here on Jumble Think. It has been an honor to talk about his career, some of the projects he's worked on, and to learn a little bit more about the behind the scenes of being a journalist. If you want to check out his projects along with connect with him on social media channels, we put those links in the episode notes to help you find it easier. Go check them out. I think you're going to really enjoy what he's working on. I also want to thank you for tuning in to today's show. It's an honor to have you along for the ride, and I hope today's conversation has inspired you. One of my big takeaways from today's conversation is that at an early age, Chris knew what he wanted to do. He had had a spark of inspiration to say, I want to be a journalist. I want to cover news like this. And he did it. How many of us have those dreams as a child, have those goals, have those visions, and yet forget about them, or worse yet, decide that we're not good enough for them. That's my challenge to you today. Look back at your childhood. What were the things you wanted to accomplish? What were the things you wanted to do? Have you done them? If not, why not? And is it time to step out and take that risk and step into the unknown? Maybe those dreams of childhood, maybe those ideas deep within you, they really matter. 
Maybe you were created for something awesome and you could make those dreams a reality. So that's my challenge. I hope you will take some time today to think about your dreams, your ideas, what you're passionate about, the things that you love, and maybe go pursue something new. Maybe take a risk into believing in yourself. Maybe to go create something that changes the world. But to do that, you have to step out. So now it's your turn to dream big and to change the world around you. Sur les côtés, vous êtes une autre personne. Les mères de famille, les enfants peuvent également prendre un moment revitalisant dans quelques mois lorsque vous aurez bien saisi la technique et que vous serez maître de votre corps, vous pourrez vous décontracter. Même en travaillant. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.